It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. <laughs> Hi, this is Stephen Nill, CEO of CharityChannel.com. So, you want your charity to succeed. You came to the right place. Integration of online and offline techniques is the key to your successful fundraising, and practical advice on going green is what you need. With this show, The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart, you will learn from experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Our host is Ted Hart, one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. This year, he is celebrating 25 years in the nonprofit sector and the 10-year anniversary of his firm, TedHart.com. His books range from successful online fundraising to the use of social media and how to make your nonprofit green. His guests are leaders in their field who will share tips and trade secrets for nonprofit management, green strategy, and fundraising success. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, here's Ted. And good afternoon. Thank you, Steve, for that wonderful introduction. I very much appreciate that. I am coming to you live today from the nation's capital. It is Tuesday, December 7th, and as always here on The Nonprofit Coach, we start with page one news. Everybody, welcome here to the Nonprofit Coach. Missed you all last week. I was up at uh, in Toronto at the uh, AFP Congress. Really terrific job. The folks up there are always uh, are very welcoming and do a great job with uh, all of the arrangements. Uh, and uh, we are back here today with a really terrific show. I'm very excited about our page expert who I will uh, introduce to you in a little while but don't forget here on the nonprofit coach you can call in and speak live and ask questions of our page two expert uh, by dialing three four seven three two four three zero eight zero don't forget to press one and raise your hand I'll see you here on the switchboard we'll get to you as soon as possible you can also join us over in the chat room I can see folks uh, starting to arrive over in the chat room don't forget you can ask questions there which uh, I will share with uh, our page two expert and if you're super shy and you just like to email us you can always send in your questions at tedhart at tedhart.com First up here on page one news, big announcement from Google. Uh, Google has now uh, launched uh, Google Books uh, with millions of titles uh, that are available. And, of course, uh, we immediately made sure that uh, your favorite Ted Hart books are available at Google Books. You'll find the link over, as always, and the radio links 
that you will find at tedhartradio.com. So you'll find that some of your favorite titles, Internet Management for Nonprofits, Strategies, Tools, and Trade Secrets, uh, Fundraising on the Internet, People-to-People Fundraising, The Nonprofit Guide to Going Green, Nonprofit Internet Strategies, Best Practices for Marketing Communications, and I contributed to Fundraising Principles and Practices, uh, and you will find all of those books are available today uh, on Google Books, just as they have been uh, over at Amazon for quite some time. Find that link over at tedhartradio.com. Next up here, just a little announcement from Facebook. They've introduced the new Facebook. Facebook profile. Uh, you can uh, take a quick look at that and see where uh, some of the changes are coming. One of the biggest changes is sort of this photo bar now that it's at the top of the uh, the uh, uh, Facebook profiles that allows you to uh, immediately scan and see photos that are connected uh, to that particular person. Uh, they say this is uh, a way to draw you even closer uh, for uh, those recently tagged photos. So check that out. Again, over in the radio links at tedhartradio.com. Now, I am very, very excited uh, today to have a very special guest uh, joining us here on page one uh, with a start of a series of changes and announcements specifically focused on the nonprofit sector over at LinkedIn. It's my pleasure to welcome here on page one of the nonprofit coach, Meg Garlinghouse. Meg, uh, thank you for joining us here on the nonprofit coach. A- absolutely. It's, I'm delighted to participate. Now, Meg, you've got some uh, a new job over at LinkedIn. Uh, of course, many of us in the sector have known you for a lot of years uh, as running Yahoo for good, and you did a fantastic job over there. So I'm really not surprised that you were snatched away with uh, all the exciting new thoughts that they're having over at LinkedIn. As you know, in our discussions, and I've been sharing here on the Nonprofit Coach for quite some time, I really think that LinkedIn is one of the most powerful tools for nonprofits right now today, even more powerful powerful for fundraising purposes than even Facebook. Not discounting Facebook and certainly 500 million people, that is uh, quite a a group of people there for us to uh, be trying to raise money from. But today, uh, the the strategies that are available on LinkedIn, and I understand uh, that you are now heading up a new initiative uh, over at LinkedIn. Tell us all about that. Sure, Um, and thanks for that that very nice introduction, and I'm really excited to be part of the LinkedIn um, community. We, I, I believe that we have an incredible platform that can be leveraged for nonprofits of all shapes and sizes. Um, and what we, we're in the very beginning of the stages. I've only been in this position for two months. We're in the very beginning stages of really figuring out what our unique strategy is and how we're going to support the nonprofit marketplace. But one thing I wanted to specifically highlight today, and um, would love to return to the show, and, and you know, once we have a, our our plan more solidified. But what I'd love to highlight for you today is company pages. Um, and company pages is something that's been around for a, uh, quite a long time, but we just recently added some sizzle that I think nonprofits particularly can take advantage of. So if you're not familiar with company pages, um, a place to find out more information is to go to marketing.linkedin.com and click on the company pages tab. And that can really walk you through in detail 
um, right. how to set up. And Meg, just for you to know and for all of our listeners today to know, uh, we have linked to the How to Claim Your Company page on LinkedIn uh, uh, blog that you sent over to us. So that is available today in the radio links at tedhartradio.com. You also provided us with a few examples of nonprofits uh, claiming their company page. Those are available in the radio links today. So feel free to reference those as you're walking us through some of your thoughts on uh, claiming your company page. Terrific, and thanks so much for highlighting those. Um, so a, a couple things to highlight, and, and, and again, I, I strongly encourage you to go to um, the website to get more information, is the first thing to do is to just fill out your company, your, your nonprofit description. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, if, if you are a LinkedIn member, you automatically have a company or organization page set up. Um, the, the platform automatically defaults if you have a legitimate organization associated with your name and automatically has set something up. What you need to do is go in there and claim it. In other words, go to your page and fill out the company, your organization description, add a URL, and encourage your, your friends and family to follow you. This is a terrific way to stay in touch with your members, um, to post interesting information and articles and um, keep them engaged with you. And the, the great thing about when you have people follow your organization is it pushes out to their networks. So, for example, I have 900 connections on LinkedIn. Anytime I post something, those 900 connections see that post. So organizations that I'm involved with that I follow, once they push something out to me and I comment on it, that gets pushed out to my network. So just to recap, fill out your company description and then encourage your members to follow you. And then the last really exciting um, bell and whistle that we just added um, about three weeks ago is the opportunity to post a service. I mean, the, the default language is more, more um, geared towards for-profit companies, but what you can do is you can post a service that your organization offers. And what that enables the, the members on LinkedIn to do is to recommend you. So, for example, on Donors Choose, um, they've posted a, a number of services, including their charity gift card. So I just posted a recommendation. That I think this is a terrific holiday gift to give to a, a colleague or uh, the hard-to-give-to relative that you never can figure out some, some, a gift to give to him or her. So what that does, once I recommend that product or service, again, that gets pushed out to my 900 contacts. And you can imagine once someone reads that and they think, oh, gosh, you know, what a cool gift idea or what a great service that that organization offers in Topeka, Kansas. And that's just a wonderful way to build awareness and spread your, your organization's mission. This is so important, Meg, that uh, that we have you over at LinkedIn uh, with just the way that you approach things with this uh, uh, LinkedIn for for a good approach as you're sort of sifting through everything and helping uh, charities really learn how they can maneuver through LinkedIn. As I've said for, for a very long uh, time, uh, what matters most about LinkedIn is, is really sort of that trail that you create uh, because foundations and corporations and high net worth individuals are on LinkedIn. 
And when they care about charities, they're going to do a search. They're going to find out information. And even if they don't go directly to LinkedIn, those searches are going to show up in Google and other places. And the, the key here is, is how complete are, is, is your company page? How complete is your profile? Do you have all the experts in your organization posted on LinkedIn so that when, if I'm from a foundation or a corporation, I can see that trail. The other thing, Meg, that, that uh, here on the Nonprofit Coach, we encourage charities to be active in uh, is, of course, in the LinkedIn groups uh, to really be active players uh, in those areas that they are experts. Great. And I'd, I'd love to hear um, from you, the listeners, of additional ideas of, of, of how else LinkedIn might be able to support your, your mission. So please feel free to participate in one of those groups, and I'll, I'll watch for it. Oh, that's great. That's great. Meg, thank you for joining us. We look forward to having you back here on the show from time to time as uh, you uh, uh, develop more opportunities uh, based on uh, what we've seen today. The Claim Your Company page is a great tip for charities, one that we'll carry forward. And you have a wonderful holiday. Thanks for joining us here on The Nonprofit Coach. Thanks so much, Ted, and look forward to returning. Next up here on The Nonprofit Coach, uh, you'll find over in the radio links uh, uh, today that uh, we have from Mashable. Of course, you know that uh, Mashable is one of our favorite uh, social media information outlets. Uh, and this is just kind of fun for the holidays. Uh, you can tweet your way into uh, a holiday mash pack, which is uh, gifts that are being given away. Uh, there are 12 uh, tech and social media prizes. Uh, you can find the link. Uh, this is their holiday giveaway. Uh, so don't miss the opportunity to just have a little bit of fun. Uh, go and take a look at all the things that they're giving away. And hey, maybe you'll be the lucky one to get a really nice high-tech gift uh, from Mashable uh, this year. And, of course, if you do win, um, let us know about it here on the Nonprofit Coach. It would be a lot of fun to know uh, that you heard about that opportunity here on the Nonprofit Coach. Very pleased today you'll find over in the radio links today to uh, uh, welcome to the Nonprofit Coach uh, and to the P2P uh, uh, fundraising newsletter uh, a new sponsor today, and that's Bloomspot Community Circles. This is a program that's unique and has a new way for organizations to easily raise money online. You'll find them at bloomspot.com. It's a flash sale site featuring discounted luxury experiences in cities around the country. Again, at bloomspot.com, you can find out which communities are already uh, participating in the Bloomspot community circles. These allow organizations an easy way to raise money online. Any organization can start a community circle, and anyone can join a circle to support a cause that they care about. From that point on, Bloomspot will automatically donate 10% of every purchase as part of that community circle. So check it out over in the radio links today or at p2pfundraising.org in our newsletter. You can find us, of course, in the radio links at tedhartradio.com. The community circles at bloomspot.com are already supporting hundreds of organizations, both large and small, such as Kiva and local organizations like the San Francisco Food Bank. You'll find over in the radio links today even an email address, support at bloomspot.com, where you can directly email to get assistance and ideas on how you can use Bloomspot community circles as a way to fundraise for your organization. So we do welcome their support and appreciate all the efforts that they are putting into creating really interesting opportunities 
for charities to fundraise online. Next up here on uh, page one uh, is uh, an opportunity for us to share uh, a little bit of a clip that was just uh, taped up in Toronto when I was uh, attending uh, and participating at the AFP Congress. I was able to give two lectures and following one of those lectures, the fine folks at Stephen Thomas, you probably recognize that name because they're our partners in hosting Digital Leap, the big conference up in Toronto each year that brings together the very best information on how you can succeed online. Well, today we've got a little bit of an audio clip uh, from an interview that I was given, uh, and also today's the day that we release the date for Digital Leap Canada 2011. Hi, I'm Kristen, and I'm here with Ted Hart, who just did a session on social networking and online fundraising. It was a really great session. For those who couldn't be there, can you give us the top highlights of what went on? Well, it was a two-hour session, so it's a little hard to do that quickly, but I think the most important thing for people to take away is my prediction that within four years' time, every charity will need a solid social networking strategy, and that they should do that by year by year over the next four years, building the asset that they need to be able to have the social capital that they'll be able to use in four years' time. Okay, great. And there was a number of really great tips in that session, but if you had one that you could give to people, what would that be? Well, I think get active on social media now, but don't overplay it. Mm -hmm. uh, it really is the interaction of online and offline that really is the key to success. Uh, and I shared in my session the Aunt Mabel effect, which uh, people have to come to uh, my session maybe at Digital Leap on uh, April 12th uh, here in Toronto. You can come and uh, listen and learn all about the Aunt Mabel effect. Great. Thank you very much. Okay. Well, that's a little bit of a clip letting you know that the official date for our Digital Leap 2011 in Canada will be held in Toronto on April 12th. You can go and learn all about it and even register uh, for uh, the uh, conference at digitalleap.org. And, of course, we'll have more information as all of that comes together, uh, but we did want to share that little bit of a clip and some information uh, regarding our predictions for social media use by nonprofit organizations. Next up here on on page one uh, is a very interesting 10 things I learned about Facebook in 2010. Now, this isn't my article. This comes to us from Tia Peterson over at Social Media Today. Of course, you'll find this link uh, over in the radio links at tedhartradio.com. Now, I'm not going to read all 10 of them here uh, for you, uh, but what I did find uh, very interesting today uh, is number three, uh, most companies can benefit from creating Facebook pages and recruiting fans. It's become an expected part of any business model for companies to create pages for their products and to use their Facebook site to run giveaways and other sorts of promotional events while advertising daily to thousands of users via Facebook news feed. So read all 10, uh, but I find it very interesting as we're starting to see these models, starting to see these strategies emerge that we can really use here in the nonprofit uh, sector as well. So don't forget, uh, you'll have the opportunity uh, to ask our page two expert uh, a question by dialing in today at 347 324 3080. You can ask questions by joining us over in the chat room. We have a number of people over there today. And you can email me today if you're a little bit shy and you want to get your question in at tedhart at tedhart.com. Uh, now's our opportunity to move on to page two. <laughs> Thank you. 
celebrated for some of the most important innovations in modern-day fundraising. In 2000, Penelope introduced the not-for-profit industry to the concept of donor-centered fundraising, transforming the way that the sector communicates with donors and bringing fundraising in line with donors. Of course, uh, the work of Penelope Burke is synonymous with top-notch research in our sector, so it is my pleasure today to uh, introduce you and to welcome here to the nonprofit coach, Penelope Burke. Penelope, thank you for joining us here. Ted, hi. It's been ages since we've spoken. How are you? It has been ages, and my goodness, it is such a pleasure to have you here on The Nonprofit Coach. We've got an opportunity today to really make sure that all of our listeners understand the important work that you've been doing for so many years. I think we've known each other from the beginning uh, days of uh, your company and certainly the uh, beginning days of the eFlansby Foundation, which was founded in 2000, uh, and now as that has transformed into p2pfundraising.org Available at p2pfundraising.org. So, Penelope, let's start off right at the beginning. Tell us what is your mission and passion in the nonprofit sector, and specifically, what does Cygnus Applied Research do? Oh, for sure. That's, uh, thanks so much for asking such a, a great question, which gets to my very heart. Um, uh, our job in the fundraising industry is to bring professional fundraisers and leadership volunteers who raise money uh, information directly from donors on what influences donors to choose one organization or over another, to stay loyal to a particular organization over a long time, and most important, what influences them to want to make more generous gifts as time goes by. In other words, what influences donors to be more profitable for a not-for-profit organization. And up until the time when I began doing research with donors, which goes back to about 1997, uh, most of the very thin research that was out there in fundraising was interesting, but it was done only with charitable organizations that raise money and their fundraisers who uh, in many times put their finger right on uh, important issues and were very perceptive, but at other times were guessing about what mattered to donors and how fundraising should work. So we're committed to bringing uh, the uh, opinions and information from the people who actually give the money to the marketplace and especially doing so early when we see new issues emerging so that fundraisers can uh, shift priorities, budget and talent, and adjust fundraising practices to meet donors' needs so that they're not caught off guard when things like, for instance, a major economic decline happens and donors suddenly change their behavior. Or I think uh, most interestingly, when uh, new media, particularly social media, starts to take hold in the realm of uh, philanthropy, fundraising, and donor communication. Uh, so I think between your work, uh, which is phenomenal, and uh, Cygnus' work directly with donors, it's um, uh, two avenues for fundraisers to be able to sort of look ahead and uh, make more money faster. 
Penelope, I think for the very beginning, one of the things that, that I really felt was uh, particularly um, good about the work that you did is it, it almost seems like there's a dividing line between uh, fundraising and fundraising professionals before Penelope Burke and fundraising professionals after Penelope Burke. And what I mean by that is that, uh, thankfully, as you just noted, we were well served by some very intuitive people who were good at reading the marketplace and understood as much as they could about what donors were looking for. But there was precious little research that you could really point to to say this is the way that donors are actually thinking. These are the expectations that donors have of us as a sector. And now I think it's so much a part of what we do that I'm not sure that, that you're quite as recognized as you were when you first started your work because it's almost become common day to expect that kind of research, to be looking for that kind of research before big decisions are made. How did you come about this, and, and what's one of the biggest things over the, the last you know, many years uh, that, that you feel has challenged our sector the most to rethink those early day assumptions? Hmm. I think you're right that uh, today there's a much greater acceptance for research than there was when I first started. And I first started for a couple of reasons. One, I had a background in market research anyway, in other industries in which I worked. I've been um, about 40 years in the not-for-profit sector in staff and consulting positions and running my own business. But I also started in market research with um, uh, with a couple of airlines and with a number of arts organizations. Uh, so I honed those skills, in particular, sort of never taking anything for granted and always wondering what the other opinion might be. So when I became a fundraiser, which I did by accident, which is in itself an interesting story, um, I was... I felt always that I was an outsider, sort of looking in at fundraising practices and often saying to myself, well, do donors really like this? Uh, and so one thing led to another, and then uh, in the mid-'90s, I developed a particular interest in the area of donor recognition, um, particularly you know, how donors are recognized for the gifts that they make and whether, in fact, donors like this kind of, the kinds of recognition we offer them and whether that recognition actually contributes to the bottom line. Does it cause donors to stay loyal longer or make them give more generously? And when I conducted that research with donors, the answer was pretty much, well, no, it doesn't. Uh, but, um, but donors were quick to say something else does. And this led to, uh, um, you know, undoubtedly the most important finding we have ever produced in our research with donors, which is the definition of what it takes to keep donors giving loyally and making larger gifts over an indefinite period. And yeah, I certainly agree with. Yeah, I, I was wondering if you, if you, if there is one or two things that come to mind that you think your research has challenged most uh, from those those early day uh, assumptions. Yes, uh, the number one thing by a mile is the number one thing that donors want, which is getting measurable results on their gifts at work whenever they make a contribution. And this would be sometime down the road after their gift has had a chance to get to work and achieve something. Uh, it's, this is the big division between donors and not-for-profit organizations. But I'm quick to say that it's not 
Uh, it's not a division between donors and fundraisers. Professional fundraisers understand how important it is to provide donors with good information on what has been achieved as a result of their giving, because that's what inspires donors to give again. Uh, and giving again is what makes you profitable. So, uh, But fundraisers have a tough time inside their own organizations convincing their boards and their CEOs uh, to make sure that all fundraising is done uh, in a designated fashion, meaning that they raise money not just for the benefit of the organization as a whole, but raise money for specific programs and services and objectives so that fundraisers can talk to donors about those achievements later on. Uh, in the biz, think, it's called restricted versus unrestricted giving, and it's still the number one thing that, that holds fundraising back. Yeah, and isn't, isn't that one of the most important things that, that your research has really helped the fundraising profession is to go back with data, not assumptions, uh, yes. and at least be able to make the case whether they succeed or not, mm -hmm. uh, but to make the case that donors do have expectations that by and large for a lot of charities are not being met because of the way the charities approach uh, their donors. That's 100% true. The last time we researched this issue, on donor retention and gift value, 84% of the donors we surveyed said, if I got the measurable results and if I got a, you know, a friendly personal acknowledgement letter when I gave so that I felt like more than a file number and a gift amount, uh, if I got those two things every time I made a gift, I would not stop giving. Uh, now, the actual donor attrition rate is significant. It's 90%. Um, uh, ninety percent of donors stop giving within five asks of being acquired, and sixty five percent of them stop giving after the first gift they make so if eighty four percent of donors are saying they 'll stay indefinitely that's that 's almost a complete turnaround and in the testing we do, which always accompanies the research or follows the research we conduct. Uh, donors were telling the truth, and uh, it's this is all donors want, and it's it is doable uh, because not-for-profits are achieving amazing things on the ground, and contribute substantially to uh, not only the quality of life but life itself, uh, and have a lot of things they could be saying about what they're achieving, and it's simply that the communication just isn't happening the way it should. And, and, and as you said, your research is showing that there is progress at least being made in terms of donors' perceptions of how they're being treated. So, so there is at least there good are. news there. There's very good news. And that's on over the what period of time have you, have you seen the most significant change in the way our industry um, is approaching its donors? Uh, the single biggest improvement has been the speed at which and the quality by which not-for-profits acknowledge donors' gifts. So when I first researched this, the majority of donors were saying it takes between one and two months to get a thank you letter. And now most donors, when we ask them the same thing, will say it takes between uh, one and four weeks, depending on the size of the campaign. Um, so right. that is a huge improvement. And while I still see a lot of pretty banal uh, thank you letters out there that are templated and impersonal. Uh, every once in a while, I see one that is just stunning. It takes your breath away. And uh, yeah. our research on quality 
shows that you know a great thank you letter alone can hold a donor in place for quite some time. So it's very valuable. I'm, I'm and still really always absolutely shocked uh, at uh, at the disregard that some organizations place to their to their donors when when I see things like pre-printed postcard thank yous. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, and, and what I always try to remind charities is if the donor cared enough to sign the check. You should care enough to sign the letter. It, it, it just true. doesn't seem like it would be that difficult, but for a lot of charities, I, I guess it's such a volume business it is. that donors really – but, but yeah. donors get it. They they see that and they understand that, don't they? Mm-hmm. But it's, uh, it's, it's one of the big flaws in fundraising design in the big picture that we make decisions about what we'll do next with a donor based on the value of the gift they last gave us. So if somebody gives a lot of money, they're going to get a you know a personally well-thought-out, beautiful letter signed by the chair of the board. And if someone gave just a little bit of money, they get the pre-printed postcard. But the problem is that's fundraising being reactive and not proactive right. because fundraising should right. be developing that small dollar-value donor into a big donor. And the only way you do that is by treating them as if they were a million-dollar donor. Well, exactly, and you and I both feel the same, and I think your research bears that out, is that, you know, when you first get that first gift, typically, you know, I refer to that as as donors with training wheels uh, because they're really testing you out. It it doesn't mean that they've made a commitment. It doesn't mean that they really even care that much about your organization. There's just something that said, hey, I'll give this a try, and what they're doing is sitting back at that point and saying, okay, how do you treat me? How do you engage me? How do you educate me? And with when the way that you treat me is almost as if you were, you know, swatting at gnats, um, and uh, and I get that pre-printed postcard, mm-hmm. then you just drive home. Well, okay, I really don't matter here. I'm fascinated by uh, a new research. We now do an annual research study with uh, fifteen to twenty thousand donors. Uh, in the U.S., we do it in February every year to update our information on, you know, what's happening with donors, how the economy's impacting them, and and the like. And we're finding the same things emerging, but in particular, something you'd be interested in, given what you just said. Uh, more than 70% of donors, when making their first gift, say the value of that gift is decidedly less than they could have given, but they hold back purposefully waiting to see what the not-for-profit organization will do, as you say, how they will be treated. Give us that number again. I'm sorry, I missed that the number, the percentage. Over 70%, 72, as a matter of fact, in the last study we did, uh, percent yeah. said their first gift is nowhere near what they could give. But if a not-for-profit immediately comes back with what they need, then they're ready to put their giving where it actually belongs. In other words, a big leap in gift value bec- between gift number one and ask number two, or gift number two, can happen, uh, completely changing the profit um, picture of a not-for-profit organization almost overnight. So it's a big, big deal. Yeah, well, it almost seems that donors are much more thoughtful and strategic in the way that they give than even the charity is in the way that they ask. Well, they are because they've got tons of experience. When we asked in the 2010 Cygnus survey how many charities you support in a single year, 
Um, uh, now it declines as age declines, which is actually a big issue when it comes to fundraising. Uh, but it was not unusual for donors to say they support 10 to 16 causes a year, and the older donors say they've been giving for 40 years. That's a lot of experience. And donors get to understand how fundraising works. And fundraising works pretty much the same, no matter who's doing it or where it's happening. Uh, so donors are, are clever. They're very well-schooled, uh, and they are increasingly independent. That was our most important finding of the 2010 survey, and a very positive one for the fundraising industry, that donors' increasing independence in managing their philanthropy is a boon for fundraising if fundraisers play this right. Um, if they uh, play it right, exactly. I mean, one of the yeah. things I've been reminding uh, people in my lectures is that philanthropy is becoming personal again that it, it's really not as much of a group activity as maybe it has been in the past, that it's becoming much more individual because of the tools that are available for people to be able to make up their own minds and to find that charity that they really, truly care about. Now, uh, uh, Penelope, I just want to remind our listeners that they can call in at 347-324-3080. Don't forget to hit the number one button to raise your hand. I do see a number of people on the switchboard, but if you don't raise your hand, I'm pretty sure you're not looking to ask a question, you're just here to listen, which of course you are welcome to do. You can also ask questions over in the chat room, and uh, Penelope, we do have a question over here in the chat room. Jeff is asking, he says, I know many organizations who still use the postcard thank you. How can we get organizations to change this practice? Hmm. Uh, the best way, Jeff, is to test it. Uh, it's very difficult to shift uh, behavior of an industry or even a single organization on anything to do with fundraising unless it's tested up front first. So as a researcher, you won't be surprised that I'm a great uh, proponent of uh, testing. And what I mean in a situation like this is you could take perhaps you know, 5% of your donors who give and instead of sending them that pre-printed postcard, send them... Uh, a, a beautiful thank you letter signed by the chair of the board or a member of the board or the CEO um, and one that you've really taken time to construct. Um, in my book, Donor-Centered Fundraising, I've got 20 aspects of a great thank you letter. Uh, so, And then see what happens. And in fundraising, you're always measuring for only two things. So it's pretty easy to tell whether an innovation or something different that you do works. And the thing you're looking for is in the next time you solicit those donors, uh, uh, do the donors in the 5% who got the better letter uh, give more at a higher frequency than donors in the control group? And is their average gift value higher? If one or both of those things are improved over the control group, then you've got a winning activity. If they're not or they're less, and I doubt whether they would be less in this case, but if they are, I'm speaking in general terms, it's a test. And the objective of a test is to answer a question. It doesn't mean anyone is a failure if it doesn't work. It just means here's something you can eliminate. 
Right, and and your and your research certainly supports um, that that concept. Are there any um, details that you might be able to share with our listeners today that specifically they could go back to their board chair, go back to their uh, the chair or the the CEO of their organization, and uh, and say the, the, this is some of the data that shows that donors are looking to be engaged more from the very beginning as opposed to just growing over time. Uh, absolutely. One of the most successful tests we ever run, which has been replicated by hundreds of not-for-profit organizations, is um, actually a test involving members of the board, leadership volunteers, on the power of being thanked by the right person. So not only did donors say they wanted to get a prompt and a, a meaningful or a treasured thank you letter, but when we asked them, what would you think if a member of the board called you up just to say thank you right after you'd made a gift, they were blown away. And when we tested yeah. this, um, we found initially almost a 40% increase in gift value among the test donors who got called with a thank you from a board member over the control group who didn't, and a much extended uh, tenure. But even better than that, because... Uh, to link back to what I said before about donors' first give, gift being far less than they could give, many donors who were called by board members after making their first gift jettisoned up into a major gift category from a modest introductory level gift just because a board member took the time to call. That's really significant, uh, Penelope, that uh, uh, just a call, just that personal approach uh, to the thank you uh, can so dramatically improve the chances of not only a, a next gift, but an increased next gift. Yeah. That by, by itself uh, should make all of our listeners stand up and take notice right here at year end, one of the biggest giving seasons. It's a big deal, and it has equally important as the impact it has on the leadership volunteers, uh, because a lot of listeners today will, you know, will be shaking their heads when um, I bring up the subject of how their board members participate in fundraising, uh, and it's a real area of concern which came to light vividly in the 2010 Cygnus donor survey. We asked. Uh, 1,500 board members who sit on boards of organizations that also employ professional fundraisers, what they felt their role was in fundraising as distinct from their CEO or their paid fundraisers. And pretty much they didn't know. They didn't know what their job was. They felt they needed more training. They thought erroneously they should be developing the fundraising plan. They didn't realize that they could be effective in uh, donor communication and acknowledgement. Um, they didn't uh, feel confident about how they could help uh, develop research on donors and open doors to new donors. And they pretty much had their responsibilities upside down. So we're going back in the 2011 survey to investigate this subject uh, in much more detail. We now have about 40 questions we're going to ask of donors who are also board members uh, about what they need in order to do a better job in fundraising. It's a very big deal. Yeah, and Penelope, you've really put your finger on such, a, such an important uh, engagement, uh, probably twice a month, 
Uh, I'm uh, doing a what we call a powerful board that can fundraise uh, training somewhere um, around the world. Um, and in these trainings, what we share is one of the most important things that you can do for a board member is help them learn how to become engaged in fundraising because while most board members are kind of pushed back and, and pushed that away, it's not because they don't want to be supportive. It's not because they don't want to be in, involved. It's because they don't want to fail. Yes, And if exactly. you can start bringing them along in the process and make them feel successful, mm-hmm. one of the first things that you can do, which is sort of low-hanging fruit, is just as you just shared, uh, to ask board members each month to make two to four thank you calls to mm-hmm. folks who have made donations, not asking for another gift, just simply making that personal connection. It's such a really powerful way for board members to get engaged, but it also starts them down that path to move towards, well, maybe I can do a little bit more now that the donor isn't so scary. Mm-hmm. You're, it raises their confidence. You know, it wasn't all that long ago, about 50 years, when, do, when uh, board members did it all. They raised all yeah. the money, and they did a pretty darn good job at it, too. So it's just a question. Yeah, I think we really made a mistake as a sector um, in in our race to maybe be seen as professionals um, in sort of pulling that fundraising back as if all the fundraising has to come uh, from the charity. And of course, that's Mm -hmm. the the main concept of our book, People to People Fundraising and the P2P Fundraising Movement, uh, is to move back towards uh, the charity inspiring the action, but people making the ask. Yeah, You'll be, we're doing research now on why staff, fundraising staff, leave their jobs prematurely, uh, research that I'll publish in uh, the spring of 2011. And uh, one of the prime reasons why, why there's high fundraiser attrition is um, the frustration about responsibilities between paid staff and leadership volunteers. Yeah, no, I, I certainly uh, uh, understand that and come across mm-hmm. that on a regular basis. Now, Penelope, you had mentioned uh, the Cygnus Donor Survey 2010, mm-hmm. um, and in that survey you found a definitive shift to online giving and electronic communications, even among donors over age 65. For our listeners here, can you give us uh, some additional information uh, regarding uh, your comment in that survey uh, report where you said online giving has surpassed the tipping point? It has. It was thrilling to see it because uh, um, I'll just sort of frame it by saying online giving is a decidedly advantageous position for not-for-profit organizations, not because it's just more cost-effective, but going back to this issue of independence for donors. If donors go to your website with maybe the immediate or the eventual view to making a gift online, they can also manage their own learning experience on your website, uh, taking as much time as they want, going as far as they feel they need to uh, until they're ready to make a gift. And that keeps the donor in the driver's seat. And I'm sure, Ted, you've shared with your listeners uh, many times about the increased value of gifts made online over uh, gifts through the mail, etc., and the uh, longer uh, tenure of donors who tend to give online because they're more satisfied. So we were thrilled to find that. Oh, go ahead. Oh. Well, I was just going to say, uh, yes, we have shared that, and we've been following your research for quite some time. Uh, but please, for our listeners today, please share some of those findings that you have in terms of the long-term value of online engagement. 
Well, we do this research. We ask this question every year, and in 2010, in February of 2010, 51% of all the donors in our study uh, said they planned to give more often or more money or both uh, through online giving in 2010. Uh, so we've just sort of tipped over the halfway measure. But more important, when you take age into account, 73% of the donors under the age of 35 and 54% of donors between 35 and 64 also plan to shift more of, I don't mean all, but more of their giving online. And I was thrilled to see that 34% of donors over 65 years of age will also make at least one gift online uh, in or have made in 2010. So it is. Um, yeah, I believe a the shift. figure that, that you put out, and correct me if I if I'm wrong, but uh, mm-hmm. a, among all age groups, when you brought them all together, it was 63% have yep. given or plan to give online correct. this year. Yes, that is correct, and, and that, that's, that's really a- incredible for a lot of our listeners who are really thinking about online giving in terms of the amount of potential that they're giving up. Because as you and I both know, these are not tools that you just turn on and the money starts flowing in. You have to build that kind of activity. And as you, as you may have heard in uh, uh, the audio clip from Toronto that we played earlier, um, is my prediction that, this is, that there's a four-year window that it takes for the average charity to really build that, that online asset and now that social media is becoming even more important in this aspect you've got to build that asset or it's not going to be valuable to you you'll be uh, uh, interested uh, that we're significantly expanding our areas of research in, in on social media in the 2011 Cygnus survey so we're going to ask uh, uh, donors you know, how much time they spend uh, in social media in a week, um, what influences them, uh, whether social media communication leads to them making a gift and in what ways, who they follow on social media by type of organization and many other questions to try and bring more very up-to-date information to the industry on exactly how donors are thinking and being influenced by social media. Well, I, I, I cannot praise you enough for the research that you're doing. And, of course, uh, we are very supportive here uh, at the Nonprofit Coach uh, for uh, the fact that, you're, that you are bringing the most significant research uh, regarding online fundraising right now. And now that you're, you're moving into social media uh, as well, we want to follow that. We want you to be back here on the show when those, uh, those oh, uh, uh, findings are released. So is it fair to say that as you're looking at 2011, I don't want to put uh, words in your mouth at all, but just sort of assessing uh, what you're uh, what, what you're looking at right now. Are the the big themes moving forward in 2011, or what you're expecting may come out of uh, this research? Is this concept of board leadership and the involvement of uh, volunteers in the fundraising process, and then the online social media? Are those sort of the the two big themes that are coming they out are. of your research right now, or is there something else that charities should really be focused on? Those are our two big themes because we feel there's um, uh, uh, so much focus here and yet a big deficiency of good research data. However, we always ask every year, which provides a very interesting year-on-year comparison, 
how donors gave the previous year to whom, how much they gave in all, their highest and lowest gift values to anyone, and what their plans for giving are in the coming year so that we can see the flow of not only how donors give but how much and what is affecting their giving behavior, whether it continues to be the general economic malaise or whether something else is contributing to a downturn. Uh, the 2010 survey, for instance, um, I was scratching my head a bit over this information uh, initially, which in which mo the majority of the donors in our study uh, said they would give more in 2010 than they gave in 2009. But when I cut that data by high gift value, I found that there was a higher percentage of donors who gave um, over 100000 a year uh, who were tending to go down in giving. And as you know, you know, more of the money is made by the fewest number of donors who give uh, per donor the highest value. So when you have a decline in that group, it has a substantial negative impact on your whole portfolio. So, I'm so your research is showing that while dollars are going down, it's principally because of the, the higher level donors, uh, but the, the smaller donors continue to give and are even signi signifying that they uh, may be looking to increase their giving? Yes, that's certainly what it was in February 2010. But you can imagine that all kinds of not just market forces but other things affect how people behave year on year. And that's why we monitor this at the same time every year to come up with uh, new information that fundraisers can use as they're budgeting and looking forward at how they're going to run their operations. Penelope, we have a question that came in from David in Vancouver um, asking the statistics that we've been sharing today, um, are they just U.S.-based or are your statistics also uh, holding true in Canada? No, I'm thrilled to report that we did a double survey in 2010 where um, we did an American and a Canadian survey. Uh, they're in separate reports that can be downloaded for a small fee off our website, which is uh, cygresearch.com. And in the Canadian study, specifically on online giving, the figures are even higher. Does that surprise you, Ted? No, it actually doesn't surprise me um, because, as you know, we do a lot of work in uh, uh, in Canada, and uh, I just returned from uh, Toronto from the AFP Congress mm -hmm. last week, and I do think that both from the charity aspect and the donor aspect, Canada is very well wired um, and it really does understand and support online giving. Yeah, it's considerably higher among Canadians, with 72% of them saying they'll uh, give more through online giving in 2010 than they did in 2009. And when you look at the donors over 65, where I said it was about 35%, I think I said, of American donors um, over the age of 65 will make at least one gift online, but it's 59% of Canadian donors over 65. So there's a, a much higher comfort level among Canadians than Americans, and I hope Canadian fundraisers will take advantage of that. Yeah, and, and I think that is significant. David, thank you for sending in uh, in that question and, and reminding us 
uh, to look for those statistics coming from Penelope's research that there there is a difference between Canada and the U.S., uh, mm-hmm. but it, it tends to be in the Canadian favor. Uh, and that's not to, uh, to downgrade the significant numbers and the shift, uh, as you said, Penelope, online giving has surpassed the tipping point, and that's both in the U.S. and Canada, and that's borne out in your yes. research. Yes, and I expect it to be significantly higher again. This is one of these things where often when we do year-on-year research, the changes in behavior one year to the next may not be that significant. But in the case of online giving, we expect it to be extraordinarily significant year-on-year because it has passed the tipping point. Um, I was fascinated by something you said earlier in um, in your show on uh, the number of years left, you said within the next four years, not-for-profits would have to be like fully engaged and conversant in social engaged marketing. Engaged with social be- media, just as I believe they need to be fully engaged online with online fundraising today. Yep, yep, I would agree, except that to say that it might be shorter than four years. Um, <laughs> I, I, th- I think that, um, by the way, the traditional programs like direct mail will still have critically important value, uh, but I think their primary role will shift uh, from vehicle in which donors transact gifts into uh, communications and support device that further drives donors to your website. Um, uh, yeah, absolutely. I could not agree with you more. That's a very big piece of advice that we give. What I, I keep reminding in the research, yours and others, continues to show uh, that there are specific reasons why charities are seeing a decline in the response rates of their direct mail uh, as costs continue to go up for that direct mail. And it doesn't yes. mean that the, the, the solid advice is to uh, abandon uh, no, direct no. mail, but instead to to analyze and, as you always say, test uh, those ways that it can be used as an engagement tool as opposed to a fundraising tool. Yeah, the biggest mistake would be to abandon direct mail because every time there is a direct mail solicitation in the market, you see a giving spike in online giving. And uh, But it yeah. can be adapted. It could be a less costly tool as a communications device and highly strategic. So there are oh, there's so many advantages uh, coming because of the influence of uh, social media and online giving. Absolutely. Penelope, you have done a fantastic job today. Of course, we could spend just hours uh, delving into just a, a couple of your reports. Uh, the, the importance of the solid research that you do at Cygnus Applied Research cannot be overstated uh, in our industry. I'm absolutely thrilled to know that uh, not only are you continuing, but you're expanding and you're constantly looking for where are those top topics uh, that our industry needs to be uh, addressing and uh, to know that your focus is on board leadership, uh, involvement in, in giving and online giving uh, and social media. Uh, those are certainly the issues that we track and promote here on the Nonprofit Coach. And as always, Penelope Burke, you are right there on the cutting edge. Penelope, thank you for joining us here on the Nonprofit Coach today. Ted, thank you so much. And as a last thing, if I have time to say it, we're, you do. We, welcome, Go right ahead. we welcome uh, not-for-profits into our annual Cygnus donor research study and our partner not-for-profits who uh, let their donors know that the uh, the survey is out there online for them to go to. 
get get our national report for free, and I conduct a private webinar for our partners on the findings as soon as they're available. Well, Penelope, so, um, you have our support here on the Nonprofit Coach. If you and your staff will let us know when those opportunities are available for charities to sign up, we will promote it here on the show. Uh, we'd wonderful. like to invite you back when the research is uh, available uh, as well, so you can uh, count on the Nonprofit Coach continuing to be a solid partner uh, in wanting to see the promotion and the growth of the research done by your firm. Ted, what a pleasure to talk to you again. I hope I see you soon. Yeah, I hope I get the opportunity as well. And uh, so thank you again for joining us here on The Nonprofit Coach. Next up here on The Nonprofit Coach is uh, just a notice here, page three. We always say, uh, where can you find Ted next? Well, you can find Ted next in New Orleans. I will be in New Orleans this Thursday. Uh, The topic this week, I'm very thrilled, uh, will be uh, the uh, Nonprofit Guide to Going Green. It will be helping charities uh, in uh, New Orleans uh, to learn how they can go green on a nonprofit budget. We are back here next Tuesday with an excellent show uh, for you. I cannot thank uh, Steve Hafner and on to the show uh, and sharing his expertise on how you can expand your fundraising by expanding your knowledge of matching gift funds available from corporations. So here on the Nonprofit Coach, I want to thank you all for joining us. That's our show for today. Catch you next week, Tuesday, for the Nonprofit Coach. place you've gotten lucky lucky in line at the deli i guess aha in my dentist's office more than once actually do i have to say yes you do in the car before my kids pta meeting really yes excuse me what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky i never win and tell well there you have it you can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com play for free right now are you feeling lucky no purchase necessary void prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.